tremendous exploration if you want. The exposition, word by word, phrase by phrase, of the Book of Romans. So, as one of our members said, we'll probably be doing this for the next four years. On the screen, you will see a page from Paul's death in the Romans from the Chester Creedy Museum. This is how the original look, very similar. Uh, book that we'll be studying on this papyrus. They believe this was probably, well, this may not be papyrus. Papyrus is what? What is a papyrus? It's something from a, from a plant, right? From a plant. But they also used to write on skins of animals. And uh, sheepskin used to be quite popular as well. But this is the way that this tremendous book. We will be studying for some time to come. This is how it looked in the original form, the Book of Romans. Now again, I've given you um, very comprehensive notes. I was really considering in order to cut down on work on my part, just to give you broad outlines, and you could fill in as we go along. What I decided to do as I usually do to give you very complete notes, word for word almost, so you can fill in as we go along. Now, we are going to present this as we would present it even, as I said, in seminary. We're not going to dump down anything in this study as we normally do. That is, not that we normally dump down things, but we normally don't dump down things, is what I'm trying to say. So, we are going to be looking at it very, very closely. We begin then with an introduction, because normally, uh, when we study a book, we try to get the background of the book first before we get into the actual text. And so tonight, for the most part, we will be doing an introduction to the book. I'm not sure we will get into the actual text. That is in detail, although we'll be referring to it. But as we go along, I do want you to have your Bibles open to the book of Romans, because I'll have you to do some reading as we go along. And perhaps you might want to make some notes in the book your Bible as you go along as well, because I believe, I am without a doubt, that the Spirit of God will bless you, bless me, as we go to study this tremendous book. Alright, let's begin with our introduction to the book of Romans. Romans has been called the profoundest book in existence. I was trying to look up uh, to see if this was a true English word. Is it, Carol? Profoundest. Let's say it is. When it's been there, right? Romans has been called the profoundest book in existence. Now, you see, I'm trying to use uh, expressions and verbs and superlatives. Thank you, sir. Because this book is so fantastic, you know. It has been called the profoundest book in existence, the cathedral of Christian faith, the chief part of the New Testament. All of these are terms that have been ascribed to this book by scholars through the years. It's been called the universal gospel. In fact, it was the study of the book of Romans that led Martin Luther into a regeneration experience. The just shall live by faith alone. It was the great truth that spoke to the man who led in bringing about the Protestant Reformation. 
Now those of you who attend uh, Talios will know that we refer to Martin Luther and the Reformation quite a bit. And it was the study of this book that led him to do what he did, that brought about the Protestant Reformation. Without that, you would not have been here today. You would not be here today if it wasn't for Martin Luther studying the Book of Romans. In fact, it has been demonstrated that every great revival movement in the history of the church has begun either because of a direct study of the Book of Romans or because of someone who has been affected by someone who has studied the Book of Romans. It all goes back to this tremendous book here. Luther said that if a tyrant should ever succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures, and only Romans and the Gospel of John escape, Christianity would be saved. He said that because, as we will see, Romans sets forth the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in detail. Nothing is left out. If you want to know what the Gospel is, you have to study the book of Romans. Whereas the Gospel of John points us to who? Christ. Jesus Christ. The book is written specifically, John says, so that those who believe uh, might, uh, how do they go? These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's why John is seen as the best evangelistic tool in existence. Because that book was written specifically to lead people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he said, if only we had the book of Romans and the book of John, we would have sufficient as far as Christianity was concerned. Romans has been called the worldwide gospel, the worldwide gospel. It presents a worldwide idea of Paul's conception of the Great Commission. Paul was religious Hebrew and a cultured Greek, but he was also a Roman. And as you read the book of Acts especially, you'll see Paul making that point again and again. In fact, he utilized that fact that he was a Roman citizen to the advantage of spreading the gospel. He was a man of imperial universalism. In other words, he wasn't content with just being in Jerusalem. He wanted to cover the world. So in his spiritual conquest, he had won the East Christ. Now he would win the rest also. That's the idea of the Romans. And so in this Gospel of Paul, he says there's no respect of persons. The whole world is under indictment. Chapter 3, verse 19. God is not a God of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. All of these phrases, all of these terms go to underline the fact Paul had a gospel that was proclaimed to the whole world. Paul was a gospel, was a preacher to the Gentiles, to the world as a whole. No other book in the Bible is written according to a more systematic, organized plan than the Romans. This is a tremendous treatise here. Even from a lawyer's point of view, lawyers have said this. Uh, it's a brief that no lawyer today could really read as far as the way it was presented. It is a legal document presented in a legal format 
to present the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous piece of literature. It is recognized as literature for what it is, not just for the fact that it's the word of God or scripture, but for the fact that it is literature. Paul's other letters were more definitely related to local situations and dealt with problems that had arisen in the life of the church. But the book of Romans was an address to a congregation that Paul had never seen, never been there, and deals with the more general and basic principle of Christian principles. So Paul is laying out in the heart of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so everyone will know what it means. There is no more complete compendium. What is a compendium? It's a concise but complete presentation. It's complete but it's concise. Or you can say it the other way around. It's concise but it's complete. Right? Of the Christian doctrine in the entire Bible than there is in the book of Romans. Romans then is of all that Paul has written with the possible exception of Ephesians, which is another fantastic book. It is least a letter and most a treatise. See, most of Paul's other letters, we're going to be referring to very briefly in a moment, were uh, letters and epistles in the form, personal things. But Romans and perhaps Ephesians, but Romans for sure, is more of a treatise, is an organized, systematic presentation of what Christianity is all about, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul approaches religious problems of the highest order in a free but reasoned succession. In other words, he is systematic, he builds, he builds truth upon truth upon truth. Problems of darkness and light, sin and disgrace, or, or rather, sin and grace, fall and restoration. Doom and remission, faith and obedience, suffering and glory, transcendent hope and humblest duty, all in relation to the soul, so as to develop holy collectivity of revealed life. In other words, Paul takes the word of God and brings it to bear upon every experience of mankind in a fantastic way, in a glorious manner. I think you're going to be delighted and thrilled as you go through this book this time. The Roman converts, believers, are always anew. But such is the writer, such is his handling of this material, that the results are for the universal church and for every believer of all times. He has a particular person in mind when he's writing, but he is at the same time writing to everybody else. It's a very this is what people who, for instance, who are, who are broadcasters try to do, believe it or not. This is what they're supposed to do. I don't think too many of us do it, but since when you sit before a mic, you should have somebody in mind that you're speaking to. Don't just speak generally. Have one person in mind. Speak to that person. But you'll be speaking generally nonetheless. But if you just speak generally, that's all you'll be doing, speaking generally. But if you speak personally to someone in your other mind, you'll be speaking personally generally. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the idea he's saying here. It is never a mere treatise, for the writer is always vividly personal and conscious of persons. He 
because there is indeed a masterpiece of doctrine, but also always the unforced. Uh, they have inartificial life, but there should be unartificial life, and non-artificial. Lord, help me with this. None, right? None, right? Non-artificial. Utterance of a friend to friend. Right? This is a genuine, heartfelt uh, book. In other words, that is right. A clear understanding of the book of Romans will keep the Christian steadfast amid the onslaught of present-day false teaching. No doubt about that. Confusion, stress, and strain. It contains a superb exposition of the nature and purpose of God and of the Christian faith, life and hope. Every major doctrine is dealt with in the book of Romans. Here are some of them. First, the doctrine of man. What is this called theologically? Doctrine of man, right? Anthropology of man. The doctrine of man. Man is seen as a guilty sinner, guilty before holy God. He's seen as a saint, restored to fellowship to Christ's atonement. This is a glorious book. Really man is a sinner, guilty before God. Before God. He's seen as a saint, restored to fellowship to Christ's atonement. He's seen as a stranger. He's in the world. But not of it. So he's seen as a sinner, a saint, and a stranger. That's preaching there. You can preach that right there, Pastor. Then you have the doctrine of God as well. What is the doctrine of God called? Theology. Theology. Alright, that's true, but it's a greater name. When you start talking about God and Jesus, Dogmatics, as when you're dealing with Godhead, but uh, theocracy and so on. Doctrine of God, theology. God is seen as a sovereign, absolute in will and power, doing all things according to his own good will and pleasure. When we come to chapters 9 and 12, we're going to see that. God is absolutely sovereign, doing as he pleases, and no one has the right to question him. B, as a sustainer. He not only saves, but he sustains all who come to him through faith in Christ. Sovereign, sustainer. The doctrine of Jesus Christ, what is that called? Christology. 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 Jesus seen as Savior, a substitute and sacrifice. See all those S's? He's our Savior, a substitute. A sacrifice. He's seen also as a source of spiritual liberty and power. Comes through union with Christ. Our union with Him connects us with all of the spiritual power that we need. Comes through union with Christ. The spirit of life is from the head to the members. Glorious teaching here concerning Jesus Christ and our privilege of being in Him, dealing with our position in Jesus Christ as the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what is that called? Pneumatology. Pneumatology. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is seen as sanctifier. 
We are set apart and empowered by the Spirit. We are set apart and empowered. This is another glorious portion of the book. When we come, especially to chapter 8, when it deals with the Holy Spirit. Fantastic speaker and teaching here. As sanctified. Then as secure. His indwelling presence secures the believer as to his divine sonship. That is, the sonship of the believer. Because of the Spirit's indwelling believer, we have the assurance and security that we are the children of God. Again, Romans chapter 8. As we like to say, it begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. No separation. Tremendous chapter. Romans chapter 8. Holy Spirit is seen as our supporter. He helps us in our infirmities and in our prayer life. Again, Romans chapter 8. All of that is in there. And in fact, it's an amazing thing how Paul develops it. It isn't until chapter 8 that he really begins to deal with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He does it in a powerful way. Then, 5, the doctrine of Christian responsibility. Now, this has to do with the Christian lifestyle. Alright? Paul deals with that, especially in chapter 14 and so on. First, a sovereign freedom in relation to Christ. He's going to see that the believer has freedom in Christ. You know, for many people, they believe that when you become a Christian, you become enslaved to rules and legislation and, and all of those things. But Paul teaches that we have freedom, sovereign freedom in Jesus Christ. Uh, beautiful teaching. Then he talks about our social duty in relation to man. He deals with our responsibilities to other Christians. He deals with our responsibilities to society as a whole. This is when we come especially to chapter 14. Um, uh, but society. And then also to law, government. He deals with all of these things. Some of the most vital tools concerning government and the Christian to be found in the book of Romans. It might be a good idea to make a study of this part of the book of Romans a necessity to become a political figure. Because they learn this, their approach to government will be quite different. What we're getting now. And of course, also our responsibility to the world at large, having to do with Christian responsibility. Then he talks about the doctrine of Israel. This is where prophecy comes in. In fact, we really should have another, I believe we should have another section to theology. You know, we have angelology, we have Christology, we, we have um, anthropology, we have uh, all of these things. I believe we also should have a study of Israelology. Because the study of Israel is so vital to the church, and understanding our connection to the church. Paul deals with it, especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's a tremendous section of scripture. Deal with Israel, and we see it what we call an eventful setting aside. Eventful setting aside. This focuses on the fact that God sets Israel aside for a while as his instrument to complete his purpose on earth. And he interjects, as it were, the church. To become his instrument for completing his ministry on earth. 
event reduction. Event mode setting aside, but then it looks also like an evidence spurning. That setting aside appears to be to the Jews as though they have been spurred by God, rejected by God, overlooked by God. Paul's going to deal with all of that and show that that's not true. Eventful salvation. You see that God will work in Israel. And that statement, all Israel will be saved. True Israel will be saved. Doctrine of Israel. You'll learn a lot in those three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Paul the Apostle. Chapter 1, verse 1. If you look at this in the Bible, of course, he calls himself Paul the Apostle. Formerly, of course, his name was Saul, who was a self-righteous Pharisee, and violently persecuted the church. You have your references. One of the sad things you're not going to be able to go through all of the references, but we need to look at some of them. So, I wondered if you would, um, somebody would read Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 for us this time. The others you could look up uh, your, yourself. Now that Acts chapter 8, 193. Yeah. 192. That is not true. That's, that should probably, that's probably Acts 8, 13 and Acts 9, 12. So I read Philippians 3, 5 and 6. So see, Paul was an ardent persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. You could not find a greater adversary of Jesus Christ than Paul then known as Saul. That's why he regards himself as a model of those who can be saved. He called himself what? The chief of sinners. See? Because God turned him around completely. He was chosen as the apostle to the Gentiles. As stated in Acts 9, 15, Galatians 1, and Romans 11. He was chosen as an apostle to the Gentiles, not to the Jews, Meaning he preached to Jews. In fact, when he first started, that's all he was preaching to. And he didn't even go to the synagogues to preach to God, God, through Jesus Christ, specifically appointed and called for to take the gospel to those who were not Jews. Who were not Jews. The rest of the world. That's why it's called a universal gospel. Paul wrote 13 other epistles in the New Testament. Some say that he also wrote the book of Hebrews. Now we have no certainty to this. Many scholars uh, think that Apollo uh, wrote the book of Hebrews. Some even believe that Priscilla was the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, but most scholars, I believe, favor Paul as the author of the book of Hebrews. But certainly he is the book, the author of the book. And he wrote it at Corinth during Paul's third missionary journey, because it was his last one, last missionary. It was the sixth in order of the epistles, the sixth letters that he wrote. And it was sent to Rome by Phoebe. Okay. And you see that in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. 
Paul wrote the letter and he sent the letter to Rome on the hands of Peter. It's amazing to see how many times women were used to deliver, as it were, or convey important messages. Who were the ones to convey the message of the resurrection? And here is this important, but one of the most important books we have in our Christian uh, sources here is delivered by the woman to you. The key verses uh, chosen by many are Romans 1, 16 and 17. Would you read that please? Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is the key verse now. I would like for you to really to memorize this if you haven't done it yet. This is one of the first verses that we memorized. I want you to memorize that. And if you haven't underlined it, underline it. If you haven't, under, if you haven't highlighted it, highlight it. This is an important passage in the book of Romans. Could you read it please? Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the That is a powerful passage of scripture. That is something I mean, you could preach on that, and you could preach on that, and not you could preach on it, you could preach on it. This is a powerful, and we're going to look at it a little bit in detail when we get to it. But I really want you to memorize this. I also want to encourage you to read through the book of Romans as we go through this study as much as possible. Try to read it over and over, and if, if you can only do it once, try to read it through one city, at least once. If you do it more, then do it more. It will be a blessing to you, and it will really encourage you and tell you to go. Romans, try to read it. Through one sitting as often as you can, many times you can. But read it as we go through the study, I think you'll benefit from Memorize the books. You can memorize your book if you like. <laughs> no, really, Romans 1 16 and 17. Now, let me give you an outline. And in fact, this is the only thing I was going to give you. Uh, I knew it was going to happen. Have you fill in everything else I'm saying? But as you see, I became a little soft hearted and I give you the little things. But here is a major outline, and you don't have to write it this, you can just follow along because I don't think I left any blanks out at all. If I did, just let me know. First of all, the introduction is in um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Again, if you were in college, if you were in seminary, you would be required to memorize this outline. So you'd be able to walk through the book. You would know that the introduction is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And that's why we give it to you in this fashion. Now under this, you have a further breakdown. You have what we call the salutation, reading. That's in verses 1 through 7. In verses 8 through 15, we have personal communication. That's when Paul becomes personal. He's calling different names and so on. Then verses 16 and 17, that's the verses that we say are the key verses, but also known as the transition. In other words, this was gets him into the body. If you were developing a sermon, a study, a lesson, this is how you can do it. 
requires your introduction, you say certain things, and then you have a bridge or you have a transition that leads you into the body. And that transition should contain everything you would say in the body. You understand what I'm saying? It's a small statement of your entire message. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. And that's the way a sermon is supposed to be prepared. That's the way a message is supposed to be prepared. You have this transition or summary statement, some call it a bridge, that puts you from your opening remarks in, that's where you teach it. Now, teaching is a little different story, but you can do it there as well. First major point is condemnation. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 5, verse 20. Four chapters or more. This is where Paul deals with the state or the condition of man before God. And he shows that because of the sinful state, the wrath of God is revealed. Right? Here's the breakdown. Well, first of all, a question. You'll find this throughout the book. A major question is asked in this section. And the question is this, is the world lost? The answer of course is, yes, it is guilty before God. Chapter 3, verse 19. Please read that chapter, that verse. Chapter 3, verse 19. Somebody reading it with a little bit spunk. Chapter 3, verse 19. Notice that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world is guilty before God. And Paul develops that principle, that truth, in these chapters. Chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 5, 20, to show that God's wrath is revealed uh, toward a world that is completely guilty. They have no excuse at all. Their mouths are shut. Condemnation. Then he goes to the demonstrated in verses 18 to 32. That's the first, that's the entire chapter, the rest of the chapter 1. The heathen is condemned. This is where he deals with the world being left to go their own way. Remember, he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. This is where the strong condemnation concerning homosexuality and all of that is stressed right in here. The heathen is condemned. That is, those who do not have the law. They are condemned as much as those who do have the law. The moral is condemned. This is chapter 2. This is where he deals with the Jews who have the law. He calls those the moralists. Today, those will be professing Christians, religious people. They are also condemned because although they have the word, they do not live it out. And God says, You have the oracles of God, but the way you live it, you are blaspheming the name of God amongst the unsaved. This is a tremendous challenge, by the way, for Christians. You should read that passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and put either your name as a Christian, or just put Christianity into it, and you'll get a picture of what Paul is talking about here. Then, the, the Jew or the religionist is condemned in the rest of the chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, uh, through, that should be 8, uh, verse 38, I guess. Boy, I really don't know. Chapter 3, verse 8, yes, thank you. I forgot to hold the thing down like this. Alright, so 
that takes us to chapter 3. Then, finally, the world of death, chapter 3, verse 9 to verse 20. So it deals with the heathen, the moralists, the religionists, or legalists, and the world as a whole, showing that no one has an excuse. They're all guilty before God, and the wrath of God is revealed towards them. Then he goes to salvation. By the way, I see another mistake. That should be 118 to 320. You see under the main point condemnation. Up there with main point one, Roman number one, the wrath of God revealed. At 118 to 520, that should be 320. Then the second main point is salvation. Alright now, so here is what Paul is doing as a lawyer. He's laying out the evidence for the charge against the world. The fact that there is sin against God. And he deals with them in detail in different areas. The legalists, the moralists, the, the, uh, the pagan, all of them. He's laying it up. But now he comes to show that God's grace enters. Salvation, the wonder of God revealed. The condemnation, you have the wrath of God revealed. In salvation, you have the wonder of God revealed. You put grace if you want. Chapter 3, verse 21, to chapter 8, verse 39. <coughs> the wonder of God revealed. And when you read and study those chapters, you have to come to the conclusion really that it is the wonder of God that has been revealed through these pages written by Paul. The question in this section is, how does God save sinners? The answer is, He saves them in Christ Jesus. I know that you are ready to answer by grace, but that's not the point. We make it here. In Christ Jesus, that's where salvation is to be found. And that's what Paul works on. I mean, look at Romans 8 1. Some of you all know that. What does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See that? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he saves us in Christ Jesus. He deals with the great doctrine of justification. I want you to see the major doctrines being used. We looked at here. Justification. To be declared righteous in Christ. Notice now, in Christ. Don't lose sight of that when we deal with salvation. He deals with that in the sections, chapter 3, verse 21, to chapter 5, verse 21. This is an important chapter here. To see how God has worked it out so the sinner could be declared to be as though he had never sinned and because. He is in Christ Jesus. Tremendous passage. Justification. Then secondly, he deals with sanctification. Being made holy in Christ. This is chapter 6 and 7. These are some other tremendous chapters here. Chapter 7 is probably one of the most puzzling chapters we have in the Bible, especially with Romans. And I want you to read that. I want you all to explain that chapter for me. Here's the question I want you to answer before next week or next time. It's all talking about a person who is a Christian, 
first thing to acknowledge Romans chapter 7. So he deals with justification, he deals with sanctification, he also deals with preservation. This is what we call uh, the, 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 the perseverance of the saints, eternal salvation, if you want, kept securely in Christ. Romans chapter 8. If you ever have any doubt of your salvation, read, study, meditate upon, pray over Romans chapter 8. It's impossible for anybody who truly understands Romans chapter 8 to believe that they can be lost if they are truly saved. It's just impossible. You have to deny the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, Jesus sitting at the right hand of Christ. You have to deny those to believe that you can be saved and lost. So this is an important chapter. So it's quality and preservation kept securely in Christ. We're going to be looking at all of this in detail, but I'm just giving you the overall map. Then we come. You know, we dealt with the condemnation, sanctification, I'm sorry, salvation, sanctification, now we come to vindication. This is where Paul shifts now. He shifts his emphasis from the Jews to talk about, I'm sorry, he shifts his emphasis from the Gentiles to talk about the Jews. Because up to this point, he was putting them all in the same, the whole world. No, no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, of course, up to this point, of course, the Jews were already saying, hey, we're the people of God, we're the special people of God. What about us? Paul said, okay, I'm going to talk about you. And he deals with them in verses 9 through 11. And we call this section, the wisdom of God revealed. Because you'll see God's wisdom being demonstrated in his dealing with Israel. And even as you look at Israel today, if you don't understand this passage in here, you will be questioning what God is doing. But when you read it and understand it, you see God's wisdom in, 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 and in the fact that He is still in control even today. What's going on in Israel in the Middle East? Here's a breakdown. Question Why has Israel been set aside? The answer that He have, might have mercy on all. That's chapter 11, verse 32. Would you read that passage for me, please? I think I corrected it here, but I don't think I corrected it in the notes. It's 1132, not 1132. <laughs> God has found all men with disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Notice why, and I give you the reason why did he condemn all? So that he might have mercy on his son, so he might have mercy on all. And that's what he's saying to the Jewish people. The reason why he's dealt with Israel the way he's done. So that he may have mercy not only on the Jew, but also on the Gentile. You see, God's wisdom revealed. And by the way, that's what he's revealing in the church. The angels are looking at the behavior of the church and what the church does to try to determine whether God is a fool or whether he's wise. Read Ephesians 3, you'll see that. God's wisdom being displayed through the behavior of the church. And it's a really a sadly, sadly thing and a challenging thing to realize that when you and I as members of the church act contrary to the word of God, when we go our own way and not God's way, we are making God look foolish before the angels. Tremendous. 
Here's the breakdown on the vindication. Divine sovereignty, chapter 9. Now this is probably one of the most difficult portions of scripture. 9, 10, and 11, but especially 9. Chapter 10. Um, and for those at the NC should be under the that is the subpoint that's supposed to be a main subpoint. Chapter 9, Divine Sovereignty. Chapter 10, Human Responsibility. These are two major doctrines. Free will and human responsibility. Well, free will, human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Chapter 11, Merciful Purpose. God's purpose in dealing with Israel the way he's done so. So in these chapters, we are dealing with some tremendous theological concepts. The sanctification, justification, dealing here now with uh, God's sovereignty, man's free will, human responsibility, and all of how we reconcile these things. And then finally, conversation. Now this is actually, uh, we just put that to put a C in, alright? This has to do with the way we live. This has to do with a matter of life, human responsibility if you want. We call it conversation. The will of God revealed. How does chapter 12 begin? Exactly. So now remember. He says, I beseech you, therefore. That therefore is put there for a reason. The therefore points us back to the first 11 chapters. In other words, in light of all that God has done, for giving us salvation, sanctification, justification, and all of those, in light of all of the mercies of God, we are to do what? Present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's where the conversation, the lifestyle comes in. That goes to the end of the book. Question, how should a Christian walk? Answer, by being transformed. What does verse 2 says in chapter 12? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's how we walk. We don't walk in a transformed mind. We are to walk differently than we were before we became Christians. This is important. In other words, when we come to chapter 12, it's as though the, as you say, worm, what do you call it? Caterpillar. The caterpillar comes out of its little cocoon in chapter 12. We are metamorphosized. We are changed. We are transformed in our minds, understanding what God has done for us, understanding His Word. We are to be different than the person who is unsaved. And that's the whole point of 1 John. To show the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. And he makes the point, you cannot be a child of the devil and a child of God at the same time. And a child of God cannot live like a child of the devil. If you call yourself a child of God and you behave like a child of the devil, you are not a child of God. You are a child of the devil. 
John does not pull any punches. There's no gray areas for John. It's that or this or that. It's either or. You just don't be out of here. And this is what he's talking. We are to walk in a transformed fashion because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's what we get from chapter 12 at the end of the book. We are to do so in relation to God, to self, and to others. This is chapter 12. Remember, he focuses on love. Remember, uh, he talks about love. Uh, oh, no man. Anything. A lot of people like that. Well, they know it. But, you know, it's misinterpreted by many. That many people said being not supposed to go on a bar healing. That's not teaching that at all. Anyway, it's saying, oh, no man, anything but God. You see? In other words, love is to be an ongoing death. If it's one death, we should always think it is love. That's the point. Other deaths we to pay off. But with love, we are always to be paid. Something that goes on all the time. Then chapter 13, it's in relation to the state, the government. Uh, that's wrong, chapter 15, I don't think that's right. This is wrong. And then thirdly, in relation to the weaker brother, uh, that's going to be an important thing too, how we deal with those who are uh, immature in the faith, the thing they are mature. You'll, and you'll find that when you do the study, that most immature or, um, uh, uh, I guess that's the right word, immature Christians, think they're mature. And they want to impose their thoughts, their convictions on the door. It's an amazing thing. We deal with that. Then, in relation to ministry, chapter 15. So, Paul deals with all these relationships God, self, and others, to the state, the weaker brother, and to the ministry of the world. This last chapter to the ministry is because really, when you study this, it's going to open your eyes. In fact, you might start with one of you to see how Paul regards the ministry and how we are how we are to regard it as well. Then chapter 16, we have the end of the book. He gives personal messages in the first 16 verses. He has final warnings and admonition in verses 17 through 20. And then he gives his greetings from those who are with him in chapters 21 and 24. By the way, you find some important teachings by implications in these verses. Although he's just simply talking about greetings, this person sent their greetings, I want you to be this person and that person. 